The words of King David in Psalm 133, he says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And just before Jesus was crucified, this was his prayer. He said, this is John 17, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity among Christians. Unity in the church. Um, this is a theme that runs all throughout the Old Testament. It runs into the New Testament. It's taught by Jesus. It's taught by the apostles. It's taught by King David. Jesus, in fact, even says in John 17 that the world will know that He is the Christ by the way that we as a church and the way as the church loves one another. The world will know that we are His disciples by the way that we love one another. And today is our last week in a study on spiritual warfare. And right now, as a church, we are in a season of pretty rapid growth. And we're still, look around, we're still a very small church. But just a few months ago, our church was about 50, 60 people. And today, or last week, we had a little over 120, and it's likely that this week it'll be somewhere in that ballpark. And as, as a church, as we've continued to grow week after week after week, people are coming to Christ, people are being baptized. Um, I mean, all these great things have happened in our church. And I say this not to boast in ourselves or to boast in our church, but simply to say that God is blessing our church in tremendous ways right now. He is. And our church has grown, yes, um, and with growth comes new people. And with new people comes diversity. And with diversity often comes the potential for conflict. It just is, that's what diversity brings. Um, and as we've studied spiritual warfare, we've discussed that there are spiritual forces at play in the world that want to stop the advancement of God's presence and God's mission in this world and in our lives. And these forces include what I believe is a real enemy, Call it evil, call it Satan, call him the devil. Um, I believe it's a real personified presence of evil, but I also believe um, that one of the, the forces that want to de derail the mission of God in our lives is called our own flesh, our sinful hearts. And I promise you, when these forces, when our own sinful hearts and when the enemy sees a church like ours growing and thriving in a place like Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, um, these forces take notice. The enemy takes notice. And the enemy doesn't like it when a church is growing and thriving in a neighborhood like ours. And he will do whatever it takes to attempt to thwart our church's mission and thwart our church's activity in our neighborhood. And one of the ways he will do this 
is to highlight the differences among us that we have with one another and so that he can sow disunity and conflict among us. And as we continue to grow as a church, both in numbers but also in diversity, Lord willing, we must be aware of the possibility of conflict. Um, And we must learn how to fight for unity in the midst of diversity. And I say all of this because I believe it's an opportunity. I believe because in our cultural moment here in New York City and here in North America in the 21st century, we love divisions. We love to fight in our cultural moment right now. I mean, just look on the news. We love to have sides. We love to draw distinctions between differences. Our culture loves to make our differences be our dividing lines and force others to choose sides. And then we shame and insult anyone who's on a side that's not our own. But the church, listen, the church is the place where people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation and language, where we can show the world that the gospel unites us. In the the early church, you had tax collectors and zealots worshiping together. You had whores and rabbis eating dinner together. You had outcasts and insiders seen as equals within the church of Jesus. And Crossroads, if, if we can be like the early church, if we can be a place of unity in the midst of such diversity here in Brooklyn, we can preach a message that is so much more compelling than the message of our culture. And the message of our culture is choose sides and then shame and hate the person on the other side. But the message of the gospel is that people from all sides can come and worship under the banner of one Savior and one Lord, Jesus. And so I want to draw your attention today to a passage in Romans chapter 14. It's a lengthy passage, but hang in there. It's on the screen if you want to read along. This is Romans 14 verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now jump down to verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let you regard as good be spoken as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin couple of things I want you to see from this passage and the first one is this and I'll explain it and that is that it is usually small differences that divide Christians 
It's usually small issues that divide Christians. See, the Apostle Paul in this passage, if you weren't able to follow along, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul, he mentions, he's describing two issues that were dividing Christians in the Roman church. Um, you see, in the Roman world, it was hard to buy meat um, that had not first been donated uh, to the pagan temples for sacrifices and then resold in the marketplace. Um, so meat would be... Um, it had first been from the pagan temples, and then when it was left over, it would go be sold in the marketplace. So almost all meat in Rome during this time would have been at some point dedicated to a pagan god before it hit the shelves at the market. And some Christians um, who had been a part of paganism before, before becoming to Christ, they felt that because they had once been a part of paganism and that they are now followers of Jesus, they felt that they needed to disassociate with anything that was a part of paganism including eating meat. So what they did is they became vegetarians as a way to express their devotion to Christ. They said, you know, meat, it's been devoted to, pay, uh, to pagan gods. I'm not going to eat that. I want to separate my life from uh, paganism, and so I'm not going to eat meat. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be a vegetarian because I want to show my devotion to Christ. But other Christians, they didn't see an issue with this. They didn't see what the problem was. I mean, God had actually even told Peter in the book of Acts that all food is clean. Don't worry about the dietary laws. Because, I mean, if, it's a, if it was dedicated to a false god, what's the big deal anyway? It wasn't a real deity. So what's the big deal? And they, these Christians held this position because of an understanding of God's grace and that because of Christ, all foods have been declared clean. But both sides now were condemning one another. They were saying, oh, you shouldn't eat meat. Or they were saying, why are you a vegetarian? That's crazy. Like God said, we could eat whatever we wanted. And Paul, the Apostle Paul writing this, his theological conviction was, you can eat meat. It's not a big deal. By grace, we've been saved through faith. It doesn't have anything to do with what we eat or what we drink. But Paul, he, he was convinced that there was nothing wrong with eating meat. But he encouraged those who agreed with him to be careful not to offend those Christians whose consciences wouldn't allow them to eat meat. So that was one issue. The other issue is that this church was ethnically diverse. Rome was a very cosmopolitan city, very much like New York. It was ethnically diverse. You had Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the same uh, church. And at this point in church history, this is still very early on, the church was discussing the idea of moving the Sabbath day, so the day which they worshiped. And the Jewish Christians, you know, their holy day had been Saturday. Um, you know, on the seventh day you rest. And so it was Jewish custom, it was Jewish law, it was Jewish sort of religious conviction that the Sabbath should be on Saturday. But the Gentile Christians said, well, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, so shouldn't we worship on Sunday? And so there was disagreement, and they were mad at each other. It was a cultural, it was an ethnic difference within the church. And they were arguing, and they were debating, and they were angry. They Each side had contempt for one another for which day they wanted to worship on. And let's be honest, these are two really small issues. What you can eat and what day you take off from work. These are two very small issues, especially in light of what was going on in the church in Rome at the time. They, this church was growing rapidly. They were changing the course of history. They were facing Roman persecution, and they had been given the task by Jesus himself to take the message of the gospel to all of the known world. But instead, they were spending their time arguing over vegetarianism and what day to take off. That's a small issue. And this is where spiritual warfare comes into play because Satan wins when Christians spend their limited time and energy and they spend it on secondary matters. Satan wins when we do that. 
And I have never seen, in my short life, I've never seen a church split over a core doctrinal matter. I haven't. But I have seen several churches be divided and be splintered, and some even split over secondary issues. I've seen churches split, and I've heard of churches being split over whose view in the church is right on predestination, or the timing of the rapture, or over which Bible translation to use. Those are all things that Christians are free to debate, but those are nothing to split a church over. And as our church grows, we have an opportunity to learn how to celebrate our differences while still clinging to the unity, uh, clinging to unity on the essential doctrines of the faith, the things we just sang. I believe in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the resurrection. And we must know that Satan will try and take small issues and use them to divide us as a church, so we must be aware. And in our church, we have several differences. In a small church, this is incredibly diverse. And I just want to go through a couple of the areas in which our church is diverse. Areas that we'll need to fight for unity with on. First is political differences. Um, I look around this church. I know you guys. I follow you on Facebook, okay? I see who, what posts you like. I see what posts you share. Um, and when I, I used to pastor a church down in the south, and it was in a very conservative state in a very conservative city, and I watched in that church, and I love that church, and I love those people, but I watched as one of my favorite members in that church eventually left the church because she was told that you can't be a Democrat and a Christian by other people in the church, and she didn't feel welcome, so she left. But I've moved to New York, and I've now since moved to New York, a very liberal city, and I've seen politically conservative Christians in our church get raked over the coals on Facebook by other Christians for their political convictions. And what the subtext is, you're not the kind of Christian I want to be around. And listen, it grieves me when I see followers of Jesus mock and belittle others based on their interpretation of the Constitution. Our country is so divided right now along partisan lines, and Christians have been called by God to be salt and light in this world which means that we are to be the ones that promote charity, grace, and patience with one another. Listen, it's a beautiful thing to have political convictions. I have them. If you catch me when I'm kind of off my game, I might let you know them. <laughs> I have political convictions myself, and I, sometimes I seek to persuade others to my political convictions, and so should you. But as you seek to persuade people to your viewpoints, do so with civility and compassion, believing the best about others. See, our church has people all over the political spectrum, and I want it to always be that way. Because our country is so divided along these lines, I want people to look at our church and go, wow, Republicans, Democrats, uh, people that are feeling the burn, people that are partying with tea, you know, I want all of them, I, they all worship together, that's awesome. All worshiping together as one body, that's what we're seeking. Um, but we also, not only do we have political differences in our church, we have ethnic and cultural differences. Um, our church, one of my favorite things about the growth we've seen recently is that we've grown um, in diversity, in ethnic and cultural diversity. In fact, uh, one family in the church was telling me that a couple months ago they were praying about, they were trying to find a church. And they were, they wanted, they were praying about their minority family and they were praying about finding a church where they felt welcome and a church that was uh, diverse along ethnic and cultural lines and racial lines. And they said, we've been praying for months for a, a diverse church and then when we came and visited Crossroads for the first week, this is when uh, Sarah Ahn's husband came and sang the offertory. They said, they said, we were praying for a diverse church. He said, we came to Crossroads and there was a Korean man singing an old Negro spiritual in opera form. And they were like, 
I'm in. That's when we knew this is the church we wanted to go to. Last week, my wife had a play date with a bunch of uh, uh, my little, she took our little girl on a play date with a bunch of other girls in our church. And I asked my wife, I said, how's it going? And she texted me an emoji of all the little girls that were, you know, playing at the park. And every single color of princess emoji was in her text message, (laughs) except the yellow one. We're still working on, we're still praying that God would allow us to reach some Simpsons. But... But every little color, like she used every shade, that's beautiful. And as our church grows in diversity, and I want us to grow in diversity, it means that people in our church will be bringing a variety of experiences and backgrounds and expectations into this community. And this will always bring a beautiful kind of conflict. And we... We're going to misunderstand one another. We're going to have different approaches to life and to worship. But if we are going to be committed to diversity, it means we must be committed to listening to one another, empathizing with one another, working with one another, honoring one another in our church, working together in our church so that our church can reflect the diversity, not only in what the people in the pews look like, but in how we worship and what our leadership looks like, how we preach, how we sing, how we fellowship. As a church, if we want to be diverse, we must combine cultural and ethnic elements rather than seeking to ask other people from minority cultures to assimilate into one culture. And for this to happen, everybody across the board has to lay aside our, our cultural preferences. And let me say, for those of us who are majority culture, meaning white, if we want this church to be diverse, we are the ones that must lay down our preferences the most. See, in America, even in New York City, in order to function in this society, ethnic and racial minorities have to assimilate into majority culture in order to survive. I've heard it said that a white person can get a PhD in America without ever learning black or Hispanic culture, but a black or Hispanic person cannot get a high school diploma without ever learning white culture. See, as majority culture people, those of you who are like me, we must lay aside our cultural preferences and our cultural blind spots. We must seek to see them so that we can listen, learn, empathize, and value people of different backgrounds than us so that we can allow them in leadership to speak into how we worship, sing, speak, fellowship, and eat. Amen? I love the amen part. I love the eating part, okay? But what that means for everybody here It means that there will be some things that we do at this church that may not be exactly how you like it or exactly how you've always done it, and that's okay. It is a mark of Christian spiritual maturity when you can lay aside your preferences so that other people can worship in a way that they're comfortable. So we've got political differences. We've got ethnic differences. We also have, look around, we have transplants and natives. Okay, Our church, if I were to guess, is probably 50-50 on this, which is extremely rare in the city. I may know of only two or three other churches that have a 50-50 split between transplants and natives. And gentrification is an area of incredible tension in our city. Um, And increasingly in the neighborhoods of Sunset Park and Bay Ridge in which we find ourselves. And we have an opportunity to show our neighborhoods that transplants and natives don't have to be at war with one another. That the gospel can unite us. Which means, to you natives, Leviticus 19.4, memorize this. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So to those of you who are natives, who are locals, born and raised Brooklynites, help us see the neighborhood the way you do. Introduce us to your friends. Show us your favorite spots to eat, your favorite spots to, to have a conversation, your play, where you get your haircut. Show us those places. Teach us why you love your neighborhood and how we can be a part of it. 
But to the transplants, Jeremiah 29.5, build houses and live in the land, in the, the place in which I've called you to. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So fellow transplants, do not take all the beautiful gifts of this city and then give nothing back. Don't rape this city of its resources for your own personal gain and then leave two years later. Don't do that. While you are here, and you may be here for a few years or you may decide to stay here for a long time, but while you are here, put down roots. Don't move here with one foot um, settled into your neighborhood and then one foot back in Nebraska or North Carolina or Alabama or wherever you're from. Root yourself here. Learn your neighbor's names. Settle into your neighborhood. Settle into your building. Go to the restaurants that have been here for decades. Eat at a diner. Get coffee at a place that didn't open up three months ago. See, learn the neighborhood. Learn your neighborhood's culture rather than simply trying to bring your culture to your neighborhood with you. I read an article a few months ago about a guy, a transplant, who moved to Washington Heights predominantly historically Dominican neighborhood. He moves to Washington Heights. He's a transplant from outside and he moves into like a third floor on a main stretch like Avenue where there's a lot of like a business area. And he starts calling the cops on the people playing their Dominican music really loud in the streets. And these guys are like, what are you talking? I've been playing this music for 30 years on this block and it's never bothered anybody. But this one guy moves in there and he doesn't take the moment to understand the culture of the neighborhood. It's a Dominican culture in which they play their music loud on the streets. That's what they do. They've been doing it forever. Don't come in as a transplant and try to change the culture to fit your preferences just because you don't like it. Learn the neighborhood before you move there. Learn the neighborhood. But also, here's how not to be a native. There's a restaurant here on 3rd Avenue that says on the front door, no hipsters allowed. Okay? Look, we all have something to give and take when it comes to transplants and natives working together to know one another. To quote a native New Yorker in our church who I was discussing this sermon with, he said, both natives and transplants need to learn to let go of things we are accustomed to in order to make people outside our respective cultures feel at home. So we have natives and transplants, but we also have social differences. There's no way around this. We're all different socially. Uh, some people in this church are really cool. Some people, you're just not so cool, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding, okay? We've got nerdy people in this church. Star Trek, Star Wars, we've got the nerds. But we've got jocks in this church. All they want to do is fantasy football. Um, we've got artists in here. We've got in engineers in here. We've got introverts. We've got extroverts. We've got hood. We've got suburb. Old, young, single, married, kids, no kids. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes a book from the perspective of a demon trying to convince a Christian to leave the faith. And one of the things he says is, is if you want to divide a church, the best way to do it is to make the Christians notice each other's quirks. And he said, this is what C.S. Lewis said as, as the perspective of a demon. He said, let Christians notice that their neighbors are singing out of tune or that their boots squeak or that they have double chins or odd noses or that they talk too loud. See, the enemy wants us to notice all the quirks about everyone around us and think, you know what, these people are way too dorky for me to go to church with them. I'm going to go find a church with people like me. 
And he wants us to think ill about people who are just slightly different from us. When I was interviewing for, to be the pastor of this church, someone described Crossroads as a church full of misfits. <laughs> and the reality is, is that we're all misfits depending on who you ask. And we've got to learn to embrace the misfit in everyone. Look, church is a family. And listen, all of you in your biological family have some weird uncle that you're not like incredibly proud of, okay? <laughs> he may be like racist or he may just be loud or just he has no filter or whatever, but he's still your uncle, right? And there may be people in this church that are just a little weird. But you know what? They're family. And we love one another. And we seek to love one another in the midst of our differences. But not only do we have social differences, we have theological differences. See, the issue in Rome was a cultural disagreement. But at its core, it was a theological disagreement. And listen, I'm convinced that while many things in the Bible are incredibly clear... The Trinity, the inspiration of Scripture, the atonement, Christ's resurrection, His return, salvation by grace through faith. All the things we sang about when we just sang the song with the Apostles' Creed. Those are things that we will never debate here at Crossroads. Those are things that are non-negotiable. But there are some theological disagreements that sincere Christians can have and still be unified. Things like, what is the nature of predestination? What time does the rapture happen? Before the tribulation or after the tribulation? What about speaking in tongues? What about creation? Was it literal six day? Was it over a span of time? These are issues that sincere Christians can interpret differently from the scriptures. And where the scriptures aren't 100% clear, we must offer charity and grace toward others, even as we hold to our convictions. See, one issue that has recently come to light in our church is um, what, are we, what are the qualifications of an elder? Uh, we have sincere church members who are working out what it means to interpret 1 Timothy 2 and 3. What does it mean that an elder must be able to teach and preach? Does that mean that every elder must be able to stand up and do exactly what I do right now? What does it mean that an elder must be the husband of one wife? Does that mean that someone can never be divorced? Does that mean they have to be married? What does it mean that someone must not be a recent convert? What is, how recent is recent? Is five years too short? Is ten years? To, what is a recent convert? Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 that the office of elder is for men. Is that a cultural argument that doesn't apply today? Or is that a theological argument that does apply today? These are questions that are being asked in our church all by sincere Christians. And our job as a church is to seek truth as it is presented in the scriptures and to align ourselves with it. But in areas where the scripture isn't as clear, we hold our convictions in humility and in grace. See, Paul had a... Paul had a conviction on the issues that were facing Rome at this time. Paul thought, it was, he thought, you can definitely eat meat. That's not an issue. But he didn't fight people who disagreed with him for the sake. Uh, he didn't want to win the argument, but rather he allowed, he literally allowed others to be wrong for the sake of unity because it was a secondary matter. But you see Paul fight, and we're going to be studying the book of Galatians soon. You see Paul fight to the death when it comes to issues that have to do with salvation. In the book of Galatians, they were arguing over what the nature of the gospel is. And Paul comes out and doesn't even say like, hello, my name is Paul in the letter. He just comes out and says like, what's wrong with you? See, Paul is willing to lay aside secondary theological issues, what John Calvin calls lower doctrines. He's, able, he's, he's comfortable laying down secondary theological matters so that when it comes to fight on the ones that matter, he fights on those. Listen, theology matters I've dedicated my life to studying theology. I'm working on a PhD in theology. And by nature of existing as an organization, our church has to take a position on certain issues. 
But know this, if you are looking for a church that agrees with you on every single doctrinal point that you hold, you will never find a church for you. You won't. A.W. Pink, who's one of the great Bible teachers of the 20th century, he had very, very strong convictions on all matters of theology. And this actually made him a really good author because he was very, he was convinced in his positions. And I've been blessed by many of his books, but it made him a terrible churchgoer, an awful churchgoer, because no matter where he went, he would always find fault in something the pastor said or some song that they sang or something that some parishioner did. And so he would leave the church saying, I'll never go back there. And for the majority of his life, for like 20, 30 years, he never was a member of a church. And then finally, later in life, he decided that he wanted to become a pastor so that he could lead what he called a doctrinally pure church. He resigned two years later because the church was doctrinally compromised. The church that he was the pastor of. Listen, it is a sad way to live as a Christian. You need the body of Christ, and we need the courage to fight hard on core doctrines of the faith, but we need humility to be able to disagree with other sincere Christians on secondary theological points. My father-in-law one of my greatest heroes in ministry. He says that Christians must learn how to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And a quote that's been attributed to several different people, but all throughout church history, people have been saying this, that in essentials, we seek unity. In non-essentials, we seek liberty. But in all things, we seek charity. Now, with all of that said, I want to give you just a couple of thoughts that I think we can learn from Romans 14. First is that unity in the midst of diversity is a picture of the kingdom of God. See, people love to say that New York City is a melting pot. That's what everybody loves to say. A place where all cultures come together and just melt together. But I'm not so sure this is actually accurate. Um, I mean, if you look around, uh, it's not often where you actually truly see cultures melting together. I mean, take Bay Ridge, for example. There are noticeable areas in our neighborhood where particular ethnicities congregate um, and, and cultures um, Arabs congregate together in a certain spot on Fifth Avenue. Um, Chinese congregate together in a certain spot along east of Fourth Avenue. Um, look up to Sunset Park. Various Latino cultures all congregate in their own little enclaves. The Irish people in Bay Ridge, the Italian people in Bay Ridge. Some neighborhoods, if you look all over Brooklyn, some neighborhoods are for hipsters. Some neighborhoods are for uh, musicians, and some are for writers, and some are fashion, for fashionistas, and some are for the poor. Some are for the wealthy. That neighborhood's for the gay people. That neighborhood's for the straight people. In New York, we often define neighborhood, entire neighborhoods by the type of people who live there. I mean, when I say Williamsburg, a certain person pops into your mind. And the sad thing is, is my brother and I were there on Friday night, and it's kind of true, unfortunately. When I say Washington Heights or Upper West Side or Upper East Side or Chinatown or Park Slope, you immediately have a picture in your mind of the type of people that live there. So as diverse as New York City is on the surface, we're not really a true melting pot because we all congregate with people like us. One of my favorite comedians, a guy named Nate Bargatze, and I've told this quote before. He says this, I love it. He says, New York acts like it's a big melting pot because it's all like, oh, the different cultures. Oh, we all melt together. But then you move here and you realize it's not a melting pot at all. It's actually a bunch of pots that want to live next to their own kind of pots and not talk to other pots. <laughs> if you live in New York long enough, you go, that's essentially true. And here's why this is important, because we have a tendency to fragment and to associate with people who are like us. It's the most comfortable thing we can do. It's our default mode. But the gospel says that's not an option. 
Revelation 5.9 says that Jesus was slain by and by his blood. He ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. Jesus died so that, someone, so that people from every single culture could come together under his name. In Revelation 4, we see a picture of what the throne of Jesus will look like in eternity. And it's a people from every culture, every language, every nation, every background, all singing the glories of Christ while our faces are on the ground, ground bowing in worship. Singing the glories of Christ in their own language, in their own culture, in their own tongue. Which means, if you don't like hip-hop, sorry, you're going to hear it in heaven. If you don't like salsa, or you don't like those dudes that get on the train and play that music, you're like... Deal with it because they're going to be playing that music around the throne of Jesus because that's their culture and that's what they're going to be singing, the glory of Christ in, in that thing. And if we as a church want to demonstrate to Bay Ridge and Sunset Park and New York City that we are the people of God and that the kingdom of Christ is greater than the kingdom of this world, we must be committed to being a diverse collection of Christians that can recognize our differences, unite around the essentials of the faith, and show our city that there is a kingdom that recognizes and celebrates our differences but also transcends it. And by being a diverse church, we can actually preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to Brooklyn in a way that is so much louder than sermons and songs. Spiritual warfare, this is what we're talking about. Satan wants us to be fragmented. Satan wants, when people say, Crossroads Church, he wants the first thing that comes to people's mind to either be transplant church or this type of church. So when you think of all the churches in the city, what Satan would want is for somebody to say, oh, that's a transplant church, or that's a native church over there, or that's a Calvinistic church over there, or that's a black church, or that's a white church, or that's a Dominican church, or that's a Puerto Rican church. That's what Satan wants. But what the, what the, script, the testimony of the scripture says is the type of church that Jesus wants to build is one where people of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all cultures come together and worship the name of Jesus together. And the final thing I want to give you is that unity comes by sacrificing our freedoms and preferences for the sake of others. See, for Paul, he had a deep conviction that Christians were permitted to eat meat. He was convinced of that. But because there were Christians in his church that struggled with this, he refrained from eating meat. Look at what he says in verse 21. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And on the surface, this seems, seems crazy. That Paul would give up eating meat. Paul would give up his favorite sandwich or his favorite hamburger to seek unity. But Paul, even when in his mind he had no theological basis for abstaining, he knew that his relationship with others for the sake of the gospel was so much more important than what he had for dinner. And so he said, you know what, I'm just going to be a vegetarian while I'm in Rome. Now when I pastored down in Alabama, one of the issues that was there for a lot of people was alcohol. A lot of Christians are teetotalers down south. And while I lived there, I just didn't drink alcohol. Is it, was that because I have a theological conviction about not drinking alcohol? No. I don't have a theological conviction with that at all, but those that some people in my church did, and there were people that if they saw their pastor out drinking wine with dinner, it would cause them to stumble. So I abstained. Um, or imagine this for a moment. Imagine that one of your Muslim neighbors comes to faith in Christ and starts attending this church. That means that, you know, at our crossroads picnic, we wouldn't have pork because we wouldn't want to offend them or cause them to stumble. And it's not only food. If we as a church are truly seeking cultural and ethnic diversity, there should always be something about this church that you as an individual don't prefer. Whether it's the music, the preaching, the slang that someone in your small group uses, 
the food we eat at the picnic today, or perhaps even the way others in this church interpret secondary theological matters. There will always be things, if we're a truly diverse church, there will always be things that we disagree on. But it's the way of Jesus to sacrifice our preferences for the sake of others. Jesus came to earth as a king, the son of God. He left the right hand of the father and he entered our world, but he never demanded his rights. I'm the king, give me what I want. I created you, give me what I want. He didn't require that his preferences be met. In fact, when he was praying before his crucifixion, he said, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go die on a cross. But if that's your will, I'll do it so that others can be invited into the kingdom. And Jesus went to a bloody cross, had a crown of thorns placed on his head, had a spear stabbed into his side, had whips lashed across his back, nails pierced into his hands and feet, and his own father turned his face away from him. And while the punishment, all of that, while the punishment for our sins was poured out on him. And he endured all of this so that we could be set free from our sin and be given a seat at the table of God. And this church in Rome was arguing about hamburgers. Do you see how secondary of an issue that is? And today we have Christians fighting over politics and worship music. Jesus gave up his life so that we could be set free. Therefore, we should be willing to lay aside our preferences so that others can worship and hear the message of Jesus. And in light of the sacrifice of Christ, we ought to be ready and willing to lay down our rights for the sake of others. That's what it means to be Christ-like. That's what a healthy church is. A healthy church is a community of people all laying aside their personal preferences, prejudices, and judgments for the sake of unity. Christ gave his life so that all who follow him will have a place in his kingdom. And now he has called the church to give up our freedom for the sake of others so that they can see Christ. Let's pray.